Hello, welcome. Good to see you all. Thank you for your practice. I like to begin Dharma talks by taking refuge. So please feel free to join. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in Sangha. On Monday nights, we are going to start exploring uh, the Zen path of awakening through the images, prose, and poems of the ox herding pictures, or sometimes they're called the cow herding or bull herding pictures, where the ox or the cow or the bull um, represents our original nature. So here today, uh, we're at the beginning of the path. And this uh, first picture is often referred to as the search, the search. It's also sometimes referred to as awakening bodhicitta or arousing the mind of awakening. That's the first a stage on this seemingly stage-based model that we're exploring that's both stage-based and not. So I want to show some images so you have um, a sense of what we're talking about because this is so much an image-based teaching. So this one is from Muman Roshi's book. Um, which is called the ox herding pictures or something like that. Uh, so the, this one he calls the search or searching for the ox. And then this is another image, a little sort of like copied into uh, a PDF on a computer. So. Not the clearest images, but this is uh, another image. This is from uh, Daido Roshi's book. And then this one is a little different. This is from a contemporary teacher, Da Hung Sunim, who just recently died. And she is a Korean Zen teacher. And this is her uh, painting depiction of searching for the ox or the search. Right. And I'll share Muman Roshi's book um, in the chat so you can have access to that you're interested. And his book is the picture. You'll see that each of the pictures has a prose. Some of the um, some of the ones, some of the um, commentaries that I'll share 
will have the prose. There's a prose, a poem, and in some of them, a waka, which is like a shorter poem, a more direct uh, poem. Uh, that's usually similar to the poem, but a little more like to the point, a little less wordy. So the prose to this, um, this first picture, the search or awakening bodhicitta or arousing the mind of awakening says, the ox has really never gone astray. So why search for it? The ox has never really gone astray. So why search for it? Having turned your back on your original nature, you cannot see it. Because of your confusion, you have lost sight of the ox. Suddenly you find yourself confronted by a maze of crisscrossing roads. Greed for worldly gain and dread of loss spring up like searing flames. Ideas of right and wrong dart out like daggers. So here we're confronted with one of the seeming paradoxes of Dharma practice, that first line, the ox, or you know, more directly, our true nature has never gone anywhere. Right? That's what the teachings say again and again and again. I think it's right here. And prior to all experience, prior to all concept about it, about having it or not having it, what has been with us since the moment we were born. Through every heartbeat, breath, heartbreak, loss, joy, thought, awe, delusion, delight, that sense of ourself prior to all our conditioning, for all conditioned ways of being. So the question is, if it's so close, if it's the most intimate thing we know, if we cannot possibly be separated from our original nature, why search? And why practice? Well, that was Dogen Zenji's essential question. These teachings say, Buddha nature is inherent in all beings. We cannot be separated from it. Why do we have to work so hard? Why do we have to practice? And yet, I think this, you know, this prose is not really hiding anything. <laughs> it's telling us exactly like what, what the condition is. And I think we can resonate with this. So, so, you know, the next line is, having turned our backs on our true nature, we don't see it. And we didn't do that deliberately. We weren't born and said, well, I know I'm a Buddha, but I'm going to choose suffering instead. We've been conditioned, you know, on a very biological level to seek pleasure. And then it's kind of affirmed or confirmed over and over again while we're growing up, like that 
that pleasure, like we need something else you know, to fill that whatever it feels like, a sense of lack or void. Or we need to look to others for validation. Or we need to get success in order to be happy. And in order to get success, we need to avoid failure. Or we need to appear competent and knowledgeable and avoid feeling incompetent or unknowledgeable. And so, you know, the maze of crisscrossing roads, this conditioning, you know, also happens so early in our lives. And we have these confusing feelings early in our lives and try to make sense of them. So another way you could say this is like our feeling of isolation or our feeling of being separate or not connected to others or the earth or the universe our feelings of being unlovable or being afraid of being unlovable or our need for approval they dominate our attention you know whatever it is it dominates our attention and it creates confusion we start relating to the world as if things weren't interconnected as if we could just do it right and everything would work out if we could just find out what that right way is then everything would be okay and then we start to blame ourselves or others for our conditions and it gets much more crisscrossy confusion and meanwhile the freedom and love we seek is still right here in the present yeah like what happens and we know this condition right like this is the beginning of the path this is so much of the path is you know we're learning to be present yet we don't quite know how to be present with ourselves anymore so in the long arc of practice, this stage or picture represents really beginning to see. And this, there's, a, there's a humility inherent in this. We're really beginning to see our own ignorance or our own confusion. Or another way of saying that is our own suffering. And the insight or recognition that is so beautiful and so powerful in this and part of why it's called like awakening the Bodhi mind. Like this is a very important stage of practice that we come back to is that we're also recognizing simultaneously as we like admit or see like another dimension of our confusion, another dimension of, of our ignorance we're also awakening this thought that turns the mind that it doesn't have to be this way. And that's, that's the power of Dharma. Like, oh yes, there's another way. This is just conditioning. This isn't inherent truth. It can feel mucky. It can feel like crisscross applesauce, don't know which way is up or down. 
but it doesn't have to be this way. There is a path. That's the way the Buddha said it. There is a path. So I remember someone saying, like early on, maybe one of my first times receiving meditation instruction and really being able to hear it. I, they said, you, you are not your thoughts. And that was powerful. Like in that moment, I could hear it. Like I had enough space for my thoughts. I'd be like, oh, wow, I'm actually like the me isn't my confusion or isn't this shame or isn't this anxiety which I knew so well or isn't this narrating voice or this planning like who is the me if it isn't any of those things so that's like one way this arousing the thought of awakening can happen it's like you know these little tastes of like oh I'm not my thoughts another way it it comes up for some people is reflecting on the state of the world and some people just like are really in touch with the suffering in the world the the division the conflict the wars the discrimination and that recognition comes up at some point of like yes and it doesn't have to be this way we don't have to be divisive. There's another way that human beings can relate to each other. And sometimes we just know that deep within. Like we know like, oh, there is a compassionate response. There is a way of being in harmony. There is a way of truly living into that insight of interconnection or oneness. And we feel that. I mean, sometimes those of us who are really sensitive to the, the pain in the world, it's because we feel that the depth of, oh, there's another way. And it's so heartbreaking, so heartbreaking at times. And we you know that could even be like zoomed in into the microcosm of our own lives. And we see like our mind and our habits just going down these um routes of of suffering of of um, mischievous making of of pain and we know like deep down like oh but there is another way like there is a way of living more closely aligned with the wisdom and compassion that i know is inherent in me that i know is true that i have experienced or tasted so those are, you know, other ways that this you know, first um, ox herding picture really emerges. Another is beginning to see or taste the emptiness or dissatisfaction or unreliability of conditioned or conventional forms of happiness. So you might have had a voice that says, oh, if I get that promotion, or if I change jobs, or if I get the next degree, if I have a child, or if I meet the partner, or if I learn to sew, or if I take a trip, or if I have this next experience, then, then I will be happy. And then, like, over and over again, seeing, like, actually, 
the next achievement, the next relationship, the next really beautiful experience doesn't quite scratch the itch. And then some part of you realizes or remembers like there must be or there is another kind of happiness, one that isn't dependent on conditions. So like I said, we call this awakening the Bodhi mind or awakening Bodhicitta because these insights are core insights of the Dharma. They're sometimes stated as the recognition of suffering or the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. That we have bodies that get sick, that age, that get injured, that fall apart. We have vulnerable human minds that also will age and are susceptible to injury, confusion, sickness, and death. And all things have this nature to break down, to age, to change, to stop working, to fail, including our relationships with other human beings, which is to say that there aren't ultimately reliable in the way that maybe we want them to be or parts of us want them to be like, oh, I want my partner to always be there for me in this particular way. And they can be. And we find that out again and again. They're just a human being. They're conditioned. They can't always be there in that particular way. So an, an, another Dharma truth, which is very much, you know, that's like the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. And then another Dharma truth is the truth of impermanence, which is very connected. That... You know, all conditioned things are of the nature of change. And there's something really beautifully liberating about that, like these negative states of mind that come in, this, our confusion is of the nature to change. But uh, any, like, it's also saying, like, oh, we can't you know, take ultimate refuge in the conditions of the body, of the mind, of our relationships, because they're changing. And they will continue to change. And, you know, often the ways they change aren't always the ways that we want them to change. And that's another, you know, aspect of this reflection on or awakening to impermanence. And so also tucked within these insights into the nature of, of suffering or the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence and impermanence is that insight into our true nature, insight into the unconditioned is ultimately reliable. Buddha nature is reliable. And so that's where we have this element of the search. Search for the path, search for the path of Dharma that will help us uncover what has never been lost, right? Will help us begin to see through the convoluted thoughts and beliefs that we have 
been conditioned to think and believe that have appeared to cover up this freedom, love, wisdom, compassion. So this first ox herding picture, to go back to the awakening of bodhicitta, really invites us to get close to the motivation behind the search. Why do we want freedom from conditioned forms of suffering? What is the liberation that we seek? In the Tibetan tradition, to really enter the path of practice for some um, schools in the tradition, you contemplate a um, contemplation called the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma. Or sometimes it's translated as the four thoughts that turn the mind away from samsara. And they're really inviting like a deep reflection on some of these points. Some of these points that we like awaken to and it brings us to the path, but it's like to generate um, like to generate like the power to actually like overcome um, our habit patterns, like we need to keep seeding that motivation. We need to keep deepening that motivation. We really like need to continue to contemplate how samsara is not reliable and the like true reliability of the dharma so i have another version of the four thoughts that change the mind which is actually seven thoughts that i want to share and this is a teaching from the karmapa i'll just share it briefly and it's it's nature is um the first four are really contemplations around the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned reality unsatisfactory in the sense that does not bring ultimate happiness so it's not saying like your relationships are no good it's not saying like you should quit your job because it's not going to bring you ultimate happiness it's just saying like these things that sometimes we invest a lot of time and energy in trying to improve aren't the way to liberation like aren't the way to really like freeing the heart into the deepest expression of compassion. Like, you know, good to keep focusing on in certain aspects and also like, you know, notice how much maybe time and energy goes into um, these things that aren't ultimately happy. And then the last three are really contemplating what does bring like lasting happiness, freedom, liberation. So the first one is contemplation of impermanence, which I think I covered pretty, pretty in depth. Uh, this second, but it's like an invitation to keep contemplating, like to bring that to mind. And this you know, could be done every day as like the early part of your practice before you start sitting is to like bring these contemplations to mind. Like how much through the day am I, you know, trying to change what, you know, ultimately like 
I can't really change. And that might include like other people, it might include um, you know, some other aspect of conditioned existence or how much am I stealing against the ways that things are naturally changing. And the second contemplation is comparing. So really like comparing what is lasting happiness and what is ephemeral happiness and how often am I really like taking refuge in ephemeral happiness and again like not from this judgmental point of view of like you shouldn't enjoy your latte but like how much am I like looking for those little moments of ephemeral happiness as like like the refuge like oh if I could just and you know it's it's like when we start doing that if I could just get this and this and this and this lined up and then I'll be happy it's like that way of framing our lives when we're spending a lot of time doing those kinds of things. So it's like a, an invitation to contemplate, like, oh, how much time am I spending trying to like get all the ducks in a row so that I can have like a moment of ephemeral happiness? And does, is that actually satisfying? And where, you know, and then where, where do I find satisfaction? How does Dharma practice bring me into touch with, you know, when I first heard this one, I'm like, what, what is even lasting happiness in the face of impermanence? But that's, you know, that's an invitation or a koan. Like, well, the Dharma points to, like, the, the, the unconditioned as a place of a lasting happiness. The Dharma can bring us into like having tastes or moments of like knowing that there is a deeper level of happiness than getting what we want on a superficial level. And then the next one is reflecting on the sheer volume of conditioning factors. I really like recognizing how much we have been conditioned. All the causes and conditions that have shaped this body and mind. Like sometimes I think we like you know, believe like, oh, like I can really change the conditions and that will like have lasting change. And, you know, sometimes I can in, in, in important ways. Like we can work for like structural change in our society and like recognizing like you know if that's like all i'm doing for myself in my personal life like that isn't building um the conditions for like dharma awakening it's kind of taking refuge in you know more and like rearranging the furniture sometimes dharma teachers talk about that it's like instead of recognizing the space in the room, like the space of original nature, I'm spending all of my time just re reorganizing the furniture, trying to get it just right. Whereas like, it's always gonna break down, it's never gonna be perfect. But the perfection of the Dharma is something that we can know in any situation. 
And then the fourth one that's you know still like seeding our distaste for samsara is contemplating the mundane activities you have performed that have been beside the point. So how much of the day are we doing things that are not you know, bringing us into a deeper relationship to the Dharma or a deeper relationship to our vows, um, but more just kind of taking us on these little side trips. And again, like, not from a judgmental point of view, not like that that's bad, but just like, this can, can sometimes be a very humbling contemplation. Like, how often am I doing that? And then I say, oh, I don't have time for Dharma practice. I don't have time to sit. But meanwhile, like so much of my day, I'm doing these little side trips on the phone or um, whatever. <laughs> and then the f- now we're moving into like the positive reflections on the Dharma. So the next is to f- focus or reflect on the positive qualities of the Buddha. Which, you know, this is something I'm, again, I'm borrowing this from the Tibetan tradition, and it's not something we talk about so much in the Zen tradition, but it can be a really beautiful way of connecting to aspiration is remembering, like, why are you doing this? Like, what are those, like, beautiful qualities that you are intending to grow in your heart, in your body, in your mind. Who are you aspiring to become? What, what are you aspiring to awaken to? And it can be really beautiful like just to recognize the Buddha qualities in you and to like allow them to, to nurture them. And then the uh, sixth or the sixth one is uh, contemplating the Dharma. So in contemplating the teachings that lead to liberation, spending time really reminding yourself. I mean, that's part of what listening to a Dharma talk is. Um, Chosen Roshi used to say, like, read only as much Dharma as inspires you to practice. And I think that's, you know, an interesting part of this. It's like sometimes we're like constantly taking in teachings, but we're not applying them. So it's also like the invitation to contemplate the teachings and really apply them. And then the last, and this is part of the reason I'm sharing this one, is contemplating the realm beyond conceptuality. So remembering, and this is such an important part of uh, the Zen tradition, is remembering that space before thought, remembering the freedom beyond conceptuality. And that like, that's the place that the Dharma shines. If we can really allow ourselves and we can really practice in a way that we can be in touch with that space before thought or this you know, really allow ourselves to know or be open to the mystery beyond conceptual frameworks. So again, this contemplation, and you know, for me, some of them resonate more than others, but 
they can be just interesting to begin to open your mind to, to like really, like why would there be a teaching to um, generate a distaste for finding lasting happiness in samsara or in the conditions of our lives and to turn our hearts and minds with devotion and faith and determination to dharma practice, to the cultivation of wisdom and compassion, to the true discovery of our nature. This is an ongoing practice and sometimes life gives us this ongoing practice, like we keep kind of going down those habitual roads of suffering and we keep getting a distaste for samsara and like, oh yeah, like I need to practice dharma, oh yeah. I need to sit every day. Like, that's really important. Um, and then, like, that can keep seeding. Like, oh, yeah, there are deeper insights that I can learn to stabilize if I keep practicing. If I don't keep practicing, you know, those weeds of the mind, those distractions will often take over. So also another aspect of awakening bodhicitta is awakening the vow that our awakening is tied up in the awakening of all beings and this great earth. Just as our suffering is intimately connected with the, uh, with the suffering that's happening all over the world on this planet. So we begin our practice connected to the vow to awaken together with all beings or connected to the deep desire that all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. So this this stage, the connecting with bodhicitta becomes an intimate part of our daily practice. Like most of us need to keep clarifying our motivation. Or another way of saying that is needs to keep picking our mind up out of confusion, out of distraction, and placing it back in the present. And and need to keep reminding ourselves of the truth of interconnection and remembering these qualities of Buddhahood and like why we do this path of awakening. So this, you know, first ox herding picture is so foundational and it's something like we come back to even if we've had like deeper experiences of awakening or even if we've stabilized our concentration, it's still like coming back to that essential motivation and really letting your heart like deepen into it. Oh, that's all I have to say about that. Um, any any questions? Any reflections?